This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. WBUR Podcasts, Boston. I am back at college for the fall semester, or at least for today, trying to figure out where I'm going in order to meet a professor during office hours. Hey, can you tell me, is this the, the new computer science building? Do you know? The new, yes, it's this building, like this one that you're looking at right here. I wouldn't have pegged you for an office hours student, Ben, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I love hanging out with everyone, even professors, and especially professors who work in very nice new buildings. Beautiful building. Have you been here before? No. Oh. Hmm. It's very new, right? Okay, that yeah. does check out. I did not like school, awesome. per se, but... <laughs> You're a school drools person? All the time. So much drool. <laughs> Um, what were you talking to Dartmouth College Assistant Professor Sarush Visogi about? Well, first, about how cool the atrium of his building is. What does it look like to you? Huh. Like a beehive. <laughs> it yeah. does, right? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of individual cells that make up a hole or something? Exactly, yeah. Hole that's greater than the sum of the individuals. A nice-sounding observation, but from his answer, I'm guessing Sarush is not a professor of architecture? Correct, though in a way, he does deal with certain kinds of architecture, the careful assembly of things. I work on machine learning and natural language processing, and I do a lot of work with social media data. I've come here to get Sarush to tell me about a project he and some grad students recently worked on that's kind of on the academic bleeding edge of what machines can do with social media data. A program designed to predict the onset of serious mental health challenges. He takes me up a floating staircase to the top floor of the building, past floors of hardware labs and software labs, an expensive-looking remote-controlled sailboat. It's actually an autonomous sailboat. Is it really? Yes, it learns how to sail itself. We get into Sarush's office, where the central air is on, never good for an audio interview. Is there any way to turn that air off? Um, the air is controlled by software centrally, and ironically, this computer science professor is currently powerless to change it. 
He says there's an angry email thread about this very issue in the computer science school's listserv right now. I start to do what any student does when they're looking for extra credit with a professor, complimenting and asking him about the items on his bookshelf. Important books about algorithms, machine learning, and Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which any sci-fi nerd knows. He's got something made by a 3D printer on there. This is a a prototype of a Hodor holding the door. (laughs) Like, it's a doorstop, actually. Solid uh, uh, GameStop memes reference. Yes, exactly. (laughs) There's a homemade radar built with coffee cans, brain puzzles, a Stirling engine, which uses automated temperature differential detection to turn heat into energy. Sarush also has this beautifully designed hand-sized box with a simple mechanical switch on it. No explanation. When you flip the switch on, a robotic hand pops up immediately out of the box and flips the switch back off. (laughs) I love those. There are a lot of, uh, you know, metaphors around this. You know, one is, you know, maybe uh, the uselessness of technology. You're solving a problem that doesn't exist, <laughs> right? I mean, it just goes back. It's, it's a reminder of what not to do. What not to do, exactly. It's a useless box. That's what it is, you know. All right. I think you've got your extra credit then. True, 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 true. Time to get down to business. We start with 100-level stuff. What's a robot? Hmm. Emery, care to answer before Sarush does? Hmm. I'd say a robot performs a task mechanically and automatically, and maybe sometimes more efficiently than we can. Not bad, not bad. So a robot, I think most people will think of a mechanical being, but I th- uh, the definition of a robot is actually more general than that. Anything that does a task that a human does, but in an automated fashion, I would call a robot. Sarush started out working on mechanical beings at MIT. Robots that lifted things, performed physical feats. But now he's more focused on a particular part of robots. What he would maybe describe as the brain. And this whole host of programs which often get called by a slightly shorter name. Bots. Earlier this year, Sarush and some of his students started scraping data off of Reddit a massive number of comments from thousands and thousands of real Reddit users to look for signs of mental illness among those users. They were doing this thing in the online world because of something Sarush was seeing in his offline world. As a professor here at Dartmouth, uh, I've had a lot of conversations with students, both graduate and undergraduate, who uh, have told me that the culture they come from is such that they still don't feel uh, comfortable talking about mental uh, health issues. And they feel stigmatized to actually even say that, hey, I might, you know, be feeling anxious or maybe slightly slightly depressed. Can you say more about the um, specific cultures or would you rather keep it general? It's up to you. Um, well, I can't, I can't give you... Uh, uh, so generally speaking, uh, I think a lot of Asian cultures, uh, and, and I mean both East and West Asian, not just East Asian, uh, So people in Middle East, in East Asia, South Asia. Sarush and other researchers built a bot to help people from Asian backgrounds acknowledge they were having a mental wellness challenge by searching their posting data and looking for signs of mental stress. 
That is wild. And also tricky. Yes. And one of the things that's so fascinating about this is that millions of people all over the Internet are going around spending their days, I think, mostly thinking they're just interacting with other people online. Sure, everybody's heard Elon Musk complain that there might be too many Twitter bots. But more and more, people are part of this complicated, massive, teeming ecosystem of humans and virtual machines interacting with each other in obvious ways and kind of sneaky ways, for better and for worse. And we want to talk about that. I'm Amory, totally not a robot, Sievertson. I'm Ben, not a robot, Johnson, and you're listening to Endless Thread. <laughs> we're coming to you from WBUR, Boston's NPR station, and we're bringing you a new series about the rise of the machines. Good bot? Bad bot. Today's episode, Bot Therapy. Okay, Ben, if a bot lives on the internet, is it really a robot? I think by Sarusha's definition, yes. A robot does something a human does, but in an automated fashion. But Sarush, who works at the college where the term artificial intelligence was first coined, might not even call his creation a bot. He might call it a model. The model itself is the core of the bot. The other part is the input and output is just plugging it into uh, some kind of a you know platform and have it run in, in real time. So yeah, go ahead. Are those are those the three parts of this kind of bot input output model? That's right. Uh, and, and and is the model sort of like a roadmap or an instruction manual or something like that? What how would you further describe the model? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the a model the the simplest way to think of it is as a mathematical function that maps the input to the output. So here the input is raw data collected from the real world, you have a mathematical model, that's why we call the model, that can then map it through some transformation to a meaningful output. I don't know, man. I don't know. Model, meaningful output, input, bleep bloop. Okay, so think of a kind of really complicated flowchart, right? The input is the beginning of that complicated flowchart, and the output is the very end of it. The model? is the middle. Bleep, bloop, so let's actually try out a real-world example. And it's a relevant one. It's called ELIZA. ELIZA was a natural language processing computer program that was created by this legendary MIT professor named Joseph Weizenbaum. Natural language processing is what? Uh, natural language processing, which all that means is you're basically creating models that deals with naturally spoken languages, uh, has really advanced in the last decade. And Eliza was a computer that you talked to, but not just any old regular Joe computer program, a therapist computer. And it wasn't built in the last decade, it was built in 1964. So to try it, we need to get into a time machine. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I wish, but I would go into the future, which is female for the record. Fair, fair, but so was Eliza, supposedly. And people are still running her code on the web. Amory, shall we uh, go to the therapist? Let's go to the therapist. <laughs> you sent me an Eliza link. 
Okay, it says, talk to Eliza by typing your questions and answers in the input box. She says, hello, I'm Eliza. I'll be your therapist today. Well, what should we say? Um, hi, Eliza. I'm feeling pretty lazy today. Okay, she says, do you believe it is normal to be feeling pretty lazy today? What do you want to say back? No. No. Not one bit. (laughs) She says, are you saying no just to be negative? (laughs) (laughs) Let's say maybe, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. That's just how I feel. She says, do you wish to be able to know? That's just how you feel, question mark? All right, I'm on to you, Eliza. You're just, this is the thing where you just... What are you going to say? You keep asking a question back. Um, Yes, I wish to know the source of what's making me feel lazy and like I can't complete things. Wow, that was a rapid-fire response. She says, how do you know you can't complete things? Just ask my editor. (laughs) Just ask my boss. (laughs) She says, would you say that you have psychological problems? (laughs) How about, would you say that you have psychological problems? (laughs) What do you got? Okay, she says, oh, dot, dot, dot. Let's move on to something else for a bit. (laughs) Say that I have psychological problems, question mark. (laughs) Um, How about you're making me depressed, Eliza? Oh, my God. What makes you think I'm making you depressed, Eliza? The bot is self-destructing as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> like, she doesn't know her name. She's, uh, you know, it's like, I know I am, but what are you? What's <laughs> yeah. going on She's here? She's kind this, of negative, I in feel In this like. therapy session. Kind of a negative vibe, no? Yeah. I mean, we weren't necessarily giving her the best material to work with, but... The most helpful thing that I read in this interaction is is her saying, how do you know you can't complete things? Yeah. Maybe I'll just say that to myself throughout the day today. <laughs> okay, and we'll get back to Eliza and why that experience is not great, but think of Sarusha's project as an evolution of this decades-old idea that humans in discussion with chatbots can be helpful because maybe a bot can help us see things that we wouldn't normally see ourselves. And if Eliza was built something like 60 years ago, then bots should be amazing experts at this, right? Except no, absolutely not. In fact, they suck at it because we humans are nuanced as hell. And while robots have been processing human language for a while, 
truly understanding meaning from that language is a lot more tricky. So it's easy to, well, relatively easy, I'm going to put that in quotes, to analyze uh, what people say in terms of what they actually say explicitly. Uh, but it's a much harder scientific question to use what people say to infer what is the internal mental state. So this is very important, by the way, if we ever want to have uh, bots that are active members of a society. People know how to infer other people's states based on the way they talk and their emotions and facial expressions. Uh, bots don't. And so it, that's a very important uh, ability for bots to learn, to infer people's uh, internal states. That's really interesting. So in a way, you're talking about a, f- a foundational need that bots have, which is interpreting and understanding humans' underlying emotions. Uh, this is known as, uh, in, in, in uh, cognitive sciences, the people sometimes refer to it as, as theory of mind. Uh, and so humans, of course, evolved to do that. Uh, uh, so did monkeys, for example, and, and other uh, primates. But Over a really, 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 really long time. Exactly. Sarush points back to his office bookshelf, where there's a rock polisher, a tumbler that accelerates a natural process somewhat unnaturally. So we're doing something very similar, where we're doing what evolution does in hundreds of millions of years, but in you know, a few years, basically. Some might say this feels a little like playing God accelerating a piece of software's understanding of the mental state of humans. It's a bit... yikes. But we've been reaching for the stars on this stuff for a long time, ever since we imagined the future, or imagined people imagining the future. I'm a big science fiction fan, so uh, pretty much all of my research is actually inspired at some level, you know, Uh, by science fiction. But this particular line of research looking at mental states and more importantly being able to predict people's uh, behavior, it it actually was uh, inspired mainly by uh, uh, reading the Foundation series by Asimov. The core of the series is that there's a mathematician uh, called Harry Seldon who develops a model, field of study actually, called psychohistory. Psychohistory is a predictive model designed to forecast the behavior of very large populations. That uh, is able to predict how societies will evolve in the future based on past historical uh, data. In a minute, how Sarush is following in the footsteps of Harry Seldon, making psychohistory real with the individual commenting histories of Redditors. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. 
Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. Something is really important to say here. Sarush and his graduate students stopped short of assembling the actual bot for further use because of the potential implications of building a bot that might detect mental health or mental illness challenges in individual users. This is good. We're learning. Don't build (laughs) Skynet. Maybe just write a paper that imagines what might happen if we did build Skynet. If we uplink now, Skynet will be in control of your military. But you'll be in control of Skynet, right? What Sarush and his team did instead was chart out how to build the bot, run the model, and the input, the output, and also talk about how to tune that output. Tune? Uh, We'll get there. For now, know this. The team at Dartmouth looked at tons of Reddit users' publicly available data over time. It's thousands. Okay. Tens of thousands or just thousands? Tens of thousands. But their goal wasn't to have a bot or computer model tell if a bunch of people were having mental health challenges in the aggregate. Rather, at the individual level. Which, again, is hard. Because we're all, well, individuals. In this computer science area of study, natural language processing, the model has to account for different people communicating differently. For example, sarcasm. Sure, Amory. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, sarcasm is super hard, right? Especially when you're trying to read it online, which is why Sarush's team was applying natural language models in a really specific way. So the model learns the uh, idiosyncratic use of language by each person. This, admittedly, is both very similar to what an individual therapist might do over time, learn the complexities of communication in a given patient, but also something that let's be honest, is a massive, massive use of time. Hence that computational speeding up of evolution. The first thing the team's model, or bot, does with these massive data sets on a user's entire Reddit posting history is remove certain kinds of things, like references to particular events and people. Like, say, a pandemic. Because you want to make sure we're not capturing emotions directed towards particular events, but, you know, we want to capture the person's internal emotions. Then the model uses some pretty complex natural language analysis to discern meaning or the signal from the posts. 
This is an area where natural language processing in computer science has really leapt forward in the last decade or so. And Sarush's team is using the latest and greatest programs to help the bot understand what the user is really saying. Where previous computer programs could detect words and phrases, the new computer programs are way more sophisticated. Words and phrases are, of course, informative, uh, but we can actually look at for instance, syntactic structure of a post. You might say a word at the beginning of a sentence, it refers, which refers to something at the end of your sentence. You know, language is complicated like that. Right. There's a huge difference between saying, I'm thinking about killing myself, and wow, this high-quality gift maker is really killing it. He reminds me of myself. Exactly. Here's a big question, though. How do you know if the bot you built works? Yes, that's a really good question. So for these kind of uh, uh, projects, evaluating uh, uh, your, your body is probably actually the most challenging. Before the team looked at measuring success, they did a lot of testing and tuning of the model. They gave the bot test inputs and waited for the model to give outputs or predictions. And if the outputs were off, they actually applied another layer of calculation on the outputs after the model to get more accurate results. Then they looked at two measures of success. Whether the bot predicted a user had a mental health issue and later that user joined a mental health-focused subreddit, and also looked at users' self-reporting mental health challenges. Surprisingly, a lot of people self-report after a while saying that, hey, I just got diagnosed by, you know, they go to these forums and they subreddits and they say I got diagnosed by uh, bipolar, for instance, right? So, so the two um, uh, markers for success from your point of view are user joins mental health related subreddit. Um, user self-reports that they are um, either uh, they've been diagnosed with a mental health disorder or they're dealing with a mental health dis- uh, challenge. Exactly. And, and our model would have been successful if we predicted that way before the user actually reports. Again, it's about if we detect it afterwards, it's meaningless, of course. So it's about how far in advance you can detect that. This information is, of course, anonymized in the team's work. And because Sarush and his team had to get clearance from an ethics board to even do the work, we didn't look at specific users or ask to interview any of them. The team chose Reddit in part because the user post history is publicly available. And Reddit provides this data in easy ways for researchers to use without strings attached, a key distinction between Reddit and Meta's Facebook. But you do have to wonder a bit how people might feel about being part of this study. To be clear, Sarush isn't actually trying to replace therapists, create the latest, greatest Eliza. He's trying to connect the challenges he spoke about earlier in certain cultures and build a bot that might help counteract what he and some of his students see as unhealthy cultural norms around discussing mental illness or acknowledging it. It could be more of an early warning system. I came to the conclusion that having a... uh a way for people not to have to voluntarily say, hey, I feel depressed, uh, would be a huge help to, to people coming from those uh, cultures.
Amory, how would you feel about getting a nudge that you might be depressed by a bot that was reading your entire history of posting on social media? Honestly, I'm not as wary of the kind of big brother thing that most people are. And maybe that's a bad thing, but I don't think it would hurt to just have a light shined on my posting behaviors and and just to take another look back at them and go, oh, yeah, I did. I did post some things or say some things because we we just don't have that perspective ourselves, you know? Well, I very much appreciate your lack of cynicism, Amory, <laughs> your optimism in this moment. Um, but let's actually go back to Eliza for a minute and Eliza's creator. Mm, Joseph Weizenbaum. Joseph Weizenbaum and his family emigrated to the United States in the 1930s. They uh, saw what was coming with the, uh, the Nazi party and Hitler. That is Dag Spicer, who we hung out with for a little while. He is actually not in Dartmouth, New Hampshire. He's on the opposite side of the country as Sarush. I'm Dag Spicer, senior curator at the Computer History Museum, and we're in Mountain View, California right now. Dag Spicer is kind of a special guy with kind of a special name, I gotta say. It's it's true. Dag Dag Spicer. Spicer. Cool name. He's been at the Computer History Museum for almost 30 years, and he knows everything about computers. And he also knows a good bit about Eliza and about Eliza's creator, Joseph Weizenbaum, who worked on a few computers which had a significant impact on how we live and interact with machines, even before Eliza. Weizenbaum and others worked on this computer called Irma, which was a machine for processing checks. Well, how did it do that? Well, the really cool thing they came up with was this font called MICR, Magnetic Ink Character Recognition, that we can all still see on the bottom of our checks. It's those weird little shape numbers that you see at the bottom of your check. Those come from Irma circa 1953. Dag says that Irma's impact wasn't just on those little funny numbers on the bottom of a check. It also put thousands and thousands of check processors, human check processors, out of work. And Dag says this had an impact on Weizenbaum. He was a technologist who really cared how his work was being used and and, and how the discipline that he was a part of was uh, being used. Weizenbaum, who became a foundational mind in artificial intelligence and human-computer communication, was worried about the things we might try to solve or build with tech. And here's the funny part. Eliza, which has been called the very first chatbot, wasn't actually a serious project. Eliza was built as a satire, meant to demonstrate to humans how chatterbots, as they were originally called, might behave poorly. Mind blown. (laughs) (laughs) That's why our therapy session didn't go so well, Amory. We have been played. Joseph Weizenbaum died in 2008, a year after the iPhone was released. But Dag says this skepticism of technology was a running theme throughout Weizenbaum's life. It really started with, uh, most notably with with Robert Oppenheimer, who said, you know, after he created the atomic bomb, uh, lived the rest of his life in regret at what he had done, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, you know, technologists have to be on their guard for what he called technologically sweet, quote-unquote, problems. 
because they actually attract you with their challenge. But if you look at them from a more humane perspective, they may be actually quite harmful. We asked Dag what Weizenbaum might think about Sarush Visogi's project, looking at Reddit post histories to get a sense of whether users were struggling with mental health issues. He didn't want to speak out of turn on behalf of Weizenbaum. So we asked him just what he thought. My, my first gut reaction is it's a, it's a bit scary because they're essentially uh, mood watching. And, you know, there are AIs now that uh, read people's faces and do the same thing. They're like, oh, you're in a bad mood today. <laughs> you know, to just look at your face. And um, like, it's just such a slippery slope, you know, from there to intervention by, by the state or by somebody. So, you know, it's always the trade-off, right? Well, what, if it saves one life, is it worth? But, you know, I think, I think in this case, uh, I don't think it's a good idea. Sarush built the model, scraping Reddit to find signs of mental illness in individual users' posts. So he's not so skeptical. But he does have a big caveat. It shouldn't be the platforms or government or any uh, other external entity that's running these things and, you know, telling people to go see a therapist or whatnot. It should be a choice by people to run these things privately. And uh, the communications should be private between that tool and the person. Whether or not you support Sarush's team in imagining a world where an opt-in program could help people acknowledge their own mental health needs and challenges, or you're more cynical about how a program like that could be used, like Dag Spicer or even maybe Joseph Weizenbaum, this stuff is already happening. Bots are already dutifully harvesting massive publicly available data sets, interacting with users, and much more. Sometimes we don't even realize that our experience of the internet isn't just people talking to people. It's increasingly mediated by little pieces of software trained on the latest and greatest programs to do all sorts of things. Today, practicing how to predict your mental health issue. Tomorrow, running for political office. Next week. And of course, being digital, you, you can keep a record of, of everything that you say and do. So it creates a, a level of accountability that the current politicians just don't have. Good bot. Bad bot. Endless Thread is a production of WBUR in Boston. This episode was written and produced by my co-host, Ben Brock Johnson. Hey, with help, <laughs> With help from Dean Russell and co-hosted by yours truly. Mix and sound design by Paul Vikas. Also, the theme music for our series, which you heard at the top of the show, was composed by a bot, thanks to sound designer Emily Jankowski, who found a way to do this via a website called Boomy. You can check it out. Our web producer is Megan Cattell. The rest of our team is Nora Sachs, Quincy Walters, Grace Tatter, and Matt Reed. Pew, pew, pew. Endless Thread is a show about the blurred lines between digital communities and a useless box. If you've got an untold history, an unsolved mystery, or a wild story from the internet that you want us to tell, hit us up. Email endlessthread at wbur.org. <laughs>